The passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 22. We're continuing our work through the Gospel of Luke. You can find it printed in your bulletins or you can follow in your own Bibles. If you're able, let me ask you to stand as we read aloud from the Word of the Lord. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63, going through the end of the chapter. Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning, our Lord and our God, that you would use this passage from Luke's gospel of the record of these events and conversations at the end of Jesus' life, that you would use them in the life of this church, in the hearts of these people, by the work of your Spirit, to show us our great need for you, and to show us more of the beauty and the majesty and the mercy and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your revelation to us, and we ask that you would be with us here this morning for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we look at the end of Luke chapter 22, you probably notice that this is a particularly strange conversation. It's a strange conversation. The people that are with Jesus, they say, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds by saying, well, if I told you, you would not believe. If I asked you, you would not answer me. Two lines later, they say to Jesus, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, you say that I am. And as you read the passage, you're probably thinking there has to be more going on here. It has to be either some cloaked conversation, something that Jesus is disguising and not being completely transparent about. Maybe there's something being lost in the translation, but there seems to be something more going on in this passage. And as we look at the end of Luke chapter 22, I would say to you this morning that there's a little bit of all of that going on in this conversation between Jesus and the council. There's a little disguise, there's a little concealing, there's a little lost in the translation, and there's a little bit that's just confusing about this conversation. And so we'll talk about these things this morning as we look at this conversation between Jesus 
and the council. Now, as we begin looking at this passage, we see Jesus here before the council, and as he's speaking to this council, we recognize that there are details that must be filled in. And let me tell you, here's how we're going to orient ourselves with this passage this morning. If you look at the insert in your bulletin, you will note that there are three titles of Jesus that are used in Luke chapter 22. In case you didn't notice them, I'll write them here this morning. First of all, they ask if he is the Christ. Then you hear Jesus speaking about the Son of Man. Finally, they ask him again, are you the Son of God? These three titles of Jesus are going to help us orient ourselves to the passage. There's a reason why the three come up in this very short conversation that Jesus has this morning. Now, as you consider the passage, you'll notice that beginning in verse 66, it says, When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. Now, let me tell you, there are a few characters in this passage that we have to be aware of as we begin reading Luke 22. First of all, you heard mentioned there the council, okay? Let's take note of the council. Many of you know this council by their other name. They're often referred to as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the collection of the 70 religious leaders of Israel. There were scribes and there were priests all involved in this group that made the the religious decisions for the people of Israel. And the passage also mentions not only were there scribes there, but it says that the high priests were there. And you're probably thinking, high priests? I thought there was one high priest. Yes, there was one high priest. That was the way it ought to have been. At this moment, though, there were two priests who were functioning as the high priest. So we have a man named Caiaphas. He will be an important player in this story at the end of Luke 22. And we have his father-in-law, Annas. Both of them are significant Caiaphas is the high priest at this time, but Annas had become sort of the high priest emeritus, okay? He was the honorary high priest. He had served previously as the high priest. There were many who still saw him as a high priestly figure. And so Annas and Caiaphas both are involved in the leadership of the Sanhedrin at this moment. They both play a significant role at the end of Luke 22. And they both will play a significant role in our understanding of the events that lead up to this passage, okay? Now, let me tell you this. Luke, as he records these events, he doesn't record all of the details of the events that lead up to the trial of Jesus. If you think about this chronologically, the last thing we saw with Jesus was his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? We have his betrayal in the garden of Gethsemane, and we pick back up in verse 66. It says the next day that he appeared before the council, the Sanhedrin. But there are a number of things that happen between Jesus' betrayal and the events of Luke 22, 66 that will be important for understanding the passage this morning. So, as I often do, let me draw a timeline. If you can think of a better way of recording chronological events, you tell me, timeline seems to work for me, okay? 
On our timeline, we have the events of Luke 22, verse 63 that we just read, okay? The trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. As I said, there are a number of events, though, that happened between the betrayal of Jesus that just happened a few verses earlier in Luke 22 and the passage that we read this morning in verse 63. So let me fill you in on a few of those details. First of all, John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 19 through 24. In John 18, 19 through 24, the apostle John records what many people call the first trial of Jesus. Okay, the first trial of Jesus. In John chapter 18, the apostle John says that after Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the guards immediately led him bound to the palace of the high priest. Okay, so that's what happens immediately following the betrayal. He arrives at the palace of the high priest, and the first character to engage with Jesus is none other than Annas, the honorary high priest. And in John chapter 18, we read that the officers brought Jesus into the palace. Annas, the honorary high priest, says to Jesus, tell me about your teaching and about your disciples. And Jesus says to Annas, Go ask the people. I have told them, they know, and they will be able to tell you as much. And at that moment, it says the officer of the guard smacked Jesus across the face, and he says, how dare you speak in that way to the high priest? And Jesus says to the guard, if I've said anything wrong, you can strike me, but if I've said nothing wrong, why do you now strike me? And then it says, Annas, in a bit of frustration, he sends Jesus away to Caiaphas, okay? Caiaphas, the actual high priest. So we have John chapter 18, the first trial of Jesus before Annas, the honorary high priest. He's he's quizzed about his leadership and his disciples, and let me tell you, this is marked by frustration, Okay, you could write that down, frustration. It's marked by frustration. Thus, we have the officer of the guard striking Jesus. We have Annas who says, I'm done with you. Take him to Caiaphas. There's nothing that can be gained from this man at this moment. And he's sent forward to Caiaphas. Okay. Jesus arrives at Caiaphas, the actual high priest. And we have then recorded in Mark 14... Mark 14, 55 through 61, what many people call the second trial of Jesus, okay? Mark 14, 55, it reads like this. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and they bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made 
no answer. That's the second trial of Jesus before Caiaphas, after Annas has handed him off, right? And it is described, again, by false witnesses. You get the picture, right? They call these witnesses, and they all have these different testimonies, and none of them could agree. We can't find one common story between two witnesses so that we can condemn Jesus, right? And because of that, because of the lack of corroborating story from the witnesses, we read in Mark's gospel and in John's gospel that Caiaphas the high priest was extremely frustrated. He was extremely frustrated. In Mark's gospel, he says that Caiaphas tore his robes, right? It's the universal biblical sign for frustration. And he tore his robes. These are the two events that lead up to Luke 22, verse 63, Jesus' appearance before the whole council, before the whole Sanhedrin. One of the other things, though, we have to know if we're going to understand this unfolding of these trials here before the Jewish people is one other account that comes before Jesus' betrayal in John chapter 11. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, what's the deal? Why does Caiaphas and Anna seem to have it out for Jesus? Why does it seem like from the very beginning, all they want is to see Jesus killed? And they want nothing to do with him. We can see in John chapter 11, much earlier before the events that we read in, in Luke 22, we can see what it says here about Caiaphas. Listen to this. Many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation." But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You probably remember that passage. We've talked about it through the Gospel of Luke. In John chapter 11, we're told of Caiaphas the high priest of his motivation to kill Jesus, that it was not because he was a religious zealot or that he disagreed with Jesus on some deep theological issues. It was extremely practical because Caiaphas says it would be better for Jesus to die than for our whole nation to perish. And this morning, as we get into this passage, it has everything to do with the first title that they begin asking Jesus about in our passage this morning. That is the Christ, okay? The Christ is the Greek word Christos. That is a translation of the Hebrew word Masa. That is the English word Messiah which is a title that would be used of the coming king, the coming liberator, the one who would free the people from Rome, 
who would restore the powerful position of the people of Israel. So in John chapter 11, the people begin following Jesus. And the Pharisees are saying, whoa, whoa, wait a second. If they believe he's the Messiah, and he gets this powerful following, the Romans will say, there's a revolution going on in Israel. We need to take the power from the people, and we need to thwart this before it becomes a problem. And Caiaphas says, let's take care of Jesus before the Romans take care of us. You know, it, it's actually, there's a very current uh, modern-day correlative that would make a lot of sense to you. If you think about the war that's going on in Ukraine, the president of Ukraine has a, a very divided uh, people reflecting on his leadership. And there are many who say, charismatic leader, he's got the people following him, he has inspired them, and he's uh, allowing them to defend their country. And that is true, right? And then you have other people, maybe they're more practical, saying, this is a bad idea. He's getting the people to following them. He's leading them to their death. Many people are going to die, and in the end, Russia's going to win anyway. Right? And that's the, the people who are looking at this without any emotion or investment, just in a very practical way. Okay? And, and that's the, the division between what's happening in Ukraine. That's the division that was happening between uh, the people of the Sanhedrin and of the council and of the Pharisees at that moment, and Caiaphas is the one who comes and says, I'm just going to put it to you bluntly. It'd be better for him to die than for us all to perish. Okay? From that point forward, that's the motivation of Caiaphas. Okay? He's frustrated with Jesus from before John 11 forward. And as we begin reading of the first trial and of the second trial in, in John 18 and Mark 14, we can see why this is the case now, why... Jesus is called before Caiaphas and Annas, and it's like they have no patience with him from the beginning. And they push him, and they press him, and they want answers to their questions, and he will not give them what they want, and they're just brimming over with frustration. Those are the events that lead into Luke 22, because in verse 63, it says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They, they blindfold him, and they're striking him, and they're saying, well, prophesy. Tell, tell us who hit you, right? This happens after the second trial before Caiaphas, before the whole, the appearing before the whole Sanhedrin. Those who were charged with uh, guarding Jesus are striking him, and then he uh, immediately after this, he uh, appears before the Sanhedrin. And the frustration is brimming over with the officers, it's brimming over with the guard, it's brimming over with the council, it's brimming over with the high priest. They are all up to their limit with Jesus. Because they want him to do something, and he will not conform to what they ask or they say. And that leads to verse 67. They say to him, if you are the Christ, the Masa, the Messiah, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Would you just tell us? Okay, understanding the background, you can see what's happening here, right? If you're the Messiah, tell us. If we can just get him to say before the whole council that he's the Messiah, then this is an easy trial. Because the Jews, they have no power to exact uh, uh, the death penalty. They have no power to crucify anyone. But what they can do is they can go to Rome and they can say, look, we got good reason. Here is someone we have good reason. Would you please crucify him? And what better reason than to go to the Roman authorities and say, we have one among us who's a revolutionary. 
He's a liberator. He wants to fight against Rome and to free the Israelites. We want nothing to do with him. So they say to him, are you the Messiah? Tell us. Okay? If you're thinking of a picture to remind you of what is this uh, image that's being portrayed in the question of the Messiah, I, I use a crown. Are you the king? Are you the warrior? Are you the liberator? Are you the one who's come to free us? Would you tell us? You can understand then why Jesus answers them in this way. With everything we've already read, Jesus says, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. Of course they won't believe. Of course they won't answer. We've been through this like three times already, okay? Jesus knows where the conversation is going. And so in response to the question about his messiahship, he sees that there's nothing to be gained, and so he moves forward and he introduces another title for himself, doesn't he? He says, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I love that Jesus in his conversation, he doesn't totally neglect the question, but he also doesn't allow them to dictate the tempo or the rhythm of the conversation, okay? Am I Messiah? If, if, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. If I asked you, you wouldn't answer me, but let me tell you something else, okay? The Son of Man from this point forward shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is the introduction of the second title of Jesus. I'm gonna, I, I like to draw a stick figure. That's the best I can do as far as drawing people goes, Okay? The Son of Man, whereas the Messiah was a depiction of his kingship, of being a warrior, the Son of Man is a vivid image in the Old Testament about the humanity, the humanity of the coming king, okay? Now think about this. This is the development of the phrase through the Old Testament. The Son of Man has always been a phrase to describe the humanity of human beings, right? So when God would speak to a prophet, he would say, O son of man, write these words. O son of man, write these words. That is to say, you, human being, you person, write these words. Right? And that's how the phrase is used over and over again until we get to the prophet Daniel. And the prophet Daniel blows the lid off of the title, the son of man, because the prophet Daniel says, I saw a vision and one who is like the son of man. One who was like a human being. I saw him on the clouds, and then he was seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And from that point forward, the title, the Son of Man, takes on this whole new meaning. And the 70 who were seated before Jesus, or however, however many were there from the council, seated before Jesus would have known very well the things to which Jesus referred and to them, it would have been both divine and mysteriously complicated. Because they would have known the prophecy of Daniel, but there is so much confusion or so much that is veiled in the words of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Okay? And so Jesus says to them, Messiah, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, but... From this point forward, the Son of Man, the one who came on the clouds, who's seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man will sit 
at the right hand of the power of God. So let me ask you a question. If you're a a member of the Sanhedrin at this moment, what are you thinking? This is the conversation before the whole council of the elders, the ones who are sitting in judgment over Jesus, waiting to condemn him. What are you thinking at this moment? If it was me, I'm thinking two things simultaneously. First of all, I'm thinking, okay, we got him. Not the way we wanted to get him. Didn't get the whole Messiah answer, but I think we got him. That's got to be heresy, right? You're saying you're the son of man, right? Okay, so we got him. That's part of the feeling. I think the second part would have been confusion, frustration, anger, resentment. All of those things wrapped up together, right? Are you really saying this, Jesus? Okay. And anyway, what do you mean by this? And are you really saying this, really? Okay. That's why they proceed to ask him this question. In verse 70, they all said together, are you the son of God then? Are you the son of God then? Could you imagine all of them saying together? I imagine it wasn't in unison with one voice. I imagine it was like chaos. Shouting, clamoring, speaking over one another. Do you say you're the son of God? Are you saying this? Are you really? All together asking the question, do you really think that you are the son of God? Okay, here's my symbol for the son of God. It's the infinity sign. This is the title of Jesus, which unmistakably would have been referring to his divinity. So we have Messiah, warrior, king. We have son of man, one who is like the son of man in the vision of Daniel. But then we have son of God, that would be of God. Very God of very God. Okay, are you really saying that you're the son of God? Do you really think, Jesus, that you're the son of God? Okay, so let's say this. At this moment then, we've had many moments in Luke where we say, wow, that's really serious. This is a turning point in Luke. This might be the turning point of turning points, okay? This is the moment where there is no hiding, there is no disguising. The the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of, of Israel, are before Jesus, and they say to him, are you saying you're the Son of God? How Jesus answers this will have everything to do with how the next few days unfold, okay? And you read it in Luke, and you're probably thinking, wait, what, what's going on here? Okay, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And I know you're probably thinking, that sounds kind of non-committal. Uh, it sounds neutral. Like Jesus saying, well, you said it. I haven't said yes, or I haven't said no. That's not really what's going on in the passage, okay? Our greatest textual clue is what the people do immediately following, right? What do they do? Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it for ourselves from his own lips, okay? This is the Sanhedrin saying, all right, pack it up. We're good to go. We got what we came for. Let's go. Move forward with the crucifixion of Jesus, okay? Now, we'll talk about Jesus' phrase in just a second, but let me say in Mark's gospel, Mark says that the the Sanhedrin says to Jesus, are you the son of God then? Mark records it that Jesus says, I am. I am. But, but here in Luke's gospel, he says, Jesus says, you, you say that I am. Those are the exact Greek words. Legete hotu ego eimi. You say I am. 
But if you do a little digging and you read a little bit, all of the Greek speakers, they say, well, okay, this is an important phrase. This is not just you say that I am. This is a phrase that was often used to answer in the affirmative. It's much like we have today when we say, well, you said it or you got it. Sounds about right. I, I wrote down a few of the phrases I think we use today, okay? Sounds about right. This is Jesus' affirmation. Right, this is why if you, we're reading the ESV, but if you pick up the New American Standard, New American Standard is always really great for translating almost exactly as it's written. The New American Standard takes this big, bold leap and it translates it as Jesus says, you have said correctly that I am. That's how you translate that phrase, that Greek phrase. You have said correctly that I am. And this is why the people then respond, we're good to go. Back it up. Got everything we need. You guys take notes of that? Let's get that to the Romans. We are good to go here. In the passage this morning, Jesus affirms to the council of the elders that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And let me tell you, as we conclude with this passage, let me tell you the thought that I want to leave you with concerning these words of Jesus at the end of Luke 22, okay? At this moment, the elders of the people are left with two options. And I don't think they ever thought about the second option, okay? As the council is convened and as the man before them says to them, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, You've got me, you've said correctly, all these things are true. I, from this point forward, will sit at the right hand of the power of God. Son of God, you have correctly said it, okay? As Jesus affirms these things to the Jewish council, one option they had was, this guy is a liar and a charlatan. And if that was true, they were right to move forward with crucifying him. According to both their own law And what was available to them under the Roman law, they were right to move forward. They should crucify him. They should end his life. They should stop him. They should silence him. They should cease him from teaching. They shouldn't allow him to influence the people anymore. But there's another option, one they never considered. There's also the option that he was who he said he was. That he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man that he came with power, that he was then going to sit at the right hand of the Father. That was another option never considered by the leaders of Israel. And so again, I want to leave you with this. All of us are faced with the same two options, right? We have the same two options. I think it's sad that often those who hear the gospel and they reject it often don't consider the second option. It is so easy to hear the words of Christ and to read the Gospels, to read the Gospel of Luke and to hear the words of Jesus and to simply move past it, to reject it, to believe that there's just not much here, to have some sort of lukewarm relationship with Christ, to say, you know, I don't need to get into those things. I don't need religion. 
I don't need to reconcile with these things here, but I tell you the truth, there is a second option. It's one that I would encourage you to consider if you haven't. That is that Jesus is who he says he is. That is that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the liberator, the savior of God's people. That is that he was the son of man, that he came as one on the clouds, that he ascended into heaven, that he sits at the right hand of the ancient of days. That is that he lived this life in perfection, that he did all that was required of him by the Father. That is that he is the son of God, very God of very God, very light of very light. That he came to this world to conquer sin, death, the grave, and to conquer those things on our behalf. That through him, joined by faith, our sin might be taken by him. His righteousness might be given to us. And that by faith, we might be saved to everlasting glory. That's it. That's what you've got to reconcile with. If this is true, then it demands a response from us. Then it demands that we reconcile with the facts of the gospel. These events recorded by four different men affirmed by the writers of the epistles that by the mouth of Jesus more than 50 times, according to my counting, he would affirm that he was the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. These things demand a response from us. If you haven't considered them, I would encourage you to do so. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That he's the Son of Man as prophesied by Daniel. That he is very God of very God. Come to redeem his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning And we ask our Father that you would show us the truth, the truth of the gospel that has been revealed to us. That you would show us the truth of Jesus Christ, the one who came and affirmed by his own mouth that he was the Savior, that he was the long-promised revelation of God, that he was himself very God of very God. We ask this morning that as you reveal to us this truth, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to convict us of our need and then move by your spirit to give us the faith we need to trust in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.